while they're leaving, if you will turn to Deuteronomy 16, we're going to finish our, begin finishing our tour through Deuteronomy. And uh, I, my voice is I'm prayerful it'll get through uh, uh, today. It's, it's been gone, and uh, today is about as good as it sounded in, in a few days. So bear with me if you, if you will. But uh, Deuteronomy 16, starting in verse 18, and we're going to finish chapter 17. I'm just going to read verses 18 through the end of uh, 22, through the end of chapter 16 for us, and set the stage for what I want to say today. I believe the Word of God is saying about pursuing righteousness and only righteousness. That is the theme, that is the desire of our lives, to pursue righteousness, only righteousness in whatever we do. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, Moses writes, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God has given you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not plant for yourselves an Asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. You shall not set up for yourself a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates. Lord, uh, open our hearts and minds to this word. Lord, do not let me go further than it takes me, but give me the courage to go as far as it takes me. And Lord, in humility, I pray that we would apply this word to our lives. That we would learn from it. That we would better represent you. And we would have the faith to uh, apply it to our lives and and live it out by your grace. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. We took a break from uh, Deuteronomy in December to focus on the birth of our Savior and his life and showing how that fulfills prophecy that these things were not accidental the details around Jesus's life were were specific and the the response to that was hallelujah we we worship the one true God who completely perfectly totally fulfills scripture I'm reminded of what Simeon said in Luke 230 when he when he held Jesus and he said behold my eyes have seen your salvation and that's the, that's the response to Jesus. Salvation is found in no other than Jesus. He is indeed, Jesus is indeed God's promised one, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And as a way of reminder, uh, coming back to Deuteronomy, which we said the, the word for Deuteronomy would, Deuteronomy would be remember, Moses is preparing this new generation to enter the promised land. And in doing so, Moses has instructed them about their past, He's reminded them of their history. He's reminded them of the generation that died in the wilderness for the unfaith because they were unfaithful. He's reminded them of how faithful God has been and, and throughout their whole history. The reason they were where they were as a people was totally because of God. God had been faithful. He had never ceased to be faithful. You know, as we sang this morning, great is thy faithfulness. That's true not only of Israel, but that's true of our lives. That's true of your life and my life. The theme of my life, the theme of your life is is a faithful God. He is always faithful. And Moses has reminded them as well. He Again, he is setting them up for things to go well when they entered the promised land. He has told them about obligations in worship. He has showed them the type of people they should be. And, and all of this is, is, is really dependent upon their representation of God as a, as a people. God is holy and he says, hey, if you're going to represent me, you've got to be holy. If you're going to be my people, you've got to be a picture, a representation of who I am as your God. And now Moses has done all that. Today what we see is Moses is, is in ways instructing them as to how the government would rule their lives in the promised land. They would no longer be a people that were, that were together in, in a very uh, compact area. They would be spread out. The tribes would be, the 12 tribes, they would be spread out amongst the land. How would they govern? How would they maintain rule? In what ways would they govern? How would they rule, make decisions, adjudicate things? 
You know, as a people, you go all the back to, I think it's Exodus 18, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, gives him some great wisdom to divide the people up into fifties and hundreds and thousands and things like that to help him make decisions because Moses couldn't be the one to make every decision. Well, then when they get in the promised land, they're going to be spread out geographically. How is that going to function? How is that going to help? How is it going to work? And so Moses, Moses is teaching them. By, under the inspiration of God, Moses is teaching them. Moses, uh, on top of that, Moses is not going to be with them once they enter the promised land. So what, what's that going to look like? And so he, how would they settle their differences? How would they enforce God's laws? And God, is, as always, is equipping them with the, with the need. He's equipping them on how this is going to work in the promised land. And he is preparing his people to fully live in that promised land. And so undergirding, again, undergirding all of this is righteousness. God is demanding that his people be a righteous people. He says in verse 18, you judge the people with righteous judgment. Don't distort justice. In, in verse 20, justice, only justice. That word, that word is the same as righteousness. No matter what, pursue righteousness. And so what kind of government, what kind of government would they have? What are some qualifications? That's the kind of things that Moses is talking about here. And then I want to make some very specific application, timely application. We, we, there's a lot going in our world to, going on in our world today that I believe this passage teaches us about, and God's word more than teaches us about it. And so I want to I want to get to the application as well, but I, first we've got to understand what Moses is teaching here in its context. And the first, thing, the first thing that Moses teaches here in this text, teaches Israel is this. The goal of the government of Israel, of Israel would be righteousness. The goal of the government was righteousness, and it started with the character of the leaders. It started with the character of the leaders. Keep, keep this in mind. You look at, ver- I read them, verses 18 through 20 of Deuteronomy. That, that sets the tone. That sets the parameters. The community of Israel was to represent God in how they governed themselves. Their, their governance was to be about representing the character of God. And its goal was righteousness. And the most important aspect, the most important characteristic about their government was loyalty to God. It was loyalty. It was representing God rightly, accurately. You, you can see that in verses, in chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Why would God deal with, with criminals? Why would God did, deal with the ungodly so strongly? Look at verse 7. He gives the summary, if you will. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The goal was to get rid of the evil. Why? Because God is a holy God. And His people were to be holy. Devotion to the Lord, the righteousness of His people, that was not a small issue. And the very first thing Moses tells them in verses 18 through 22 was dealing with character. Listen to me. The most important quality about people who rule is character. The most important quality about a leader is character. We, we live in a world where we focus on skills and abilities and all these other things and whether they look good. And, and Israel fell into that trap as well. You'll see with their kings. They wanted, a, they wanted a king that looked good, that looked the part, that fit the part. Character mattered to God. Character still matters to God. You go to 1 Timothy 3, you go to Titus 3, leadership in the church. You look at all those, you look at all those attributes, they're character-oriented. They're not ability-oriented. R- really, the, best, the biggest ability that God calls for is be able to teach. Other than that, it's character issues. Character matters. And, and that mattered more than anything else. Why? Because if they were going to rule, they had to rule rightly. Verse 19, you shall not distort justice. Don't be partial. Don't take a bribe. The Psalms, Proverbs are full of that exact thing. The, these were not men who would, he says, pick men who will not twist the law to their favor. That sound familiar? Hmm. Pick men who won't just serve those whom they like or dislike. We're dealing with that today. 
Pick, pick men who won't distort righteousness, who won't distort justice, who won't be partial. Literally, that word partial there, it means regard faces. It, it literally is saying he won't, he won't judge based on what someone looks like. He won't judge based on what he deems somebody to be. He will judge rightly. He'll rule rightly. These men of character would rule and govern in a way that promoted righteousness. Above all else, righteousness was what, to be, was what to, that was to be pursued in Israel. And here's what he's saying. The leading, leading would be about promoting God's agenda, not their own agenda. The agenda had already been given. It was righteousness. Leaders, leaders whether it's in the church... In the government, in Israel, this ain't about forming your own agenda. God's already given you the agenda. It's the promotion of the kingdom of God. The leader's, the leader's agenda has already been given to him. He is to promote righteousness. The agenda was to promote loyalty. It was to promote fidelity to their God, to their great God. He was to push people, to lead people, to be loyal and faithful to the one true God. That was the role of leaders. This is not a manual necessarily for judges and kings and priests, though, though that is here. But what, he, what Moses is appealing to them is to be, be, be a people that promotes righteousness. Be a people that pursues righteousness. He is appealing to them to pursue and maintain righteousness and in doing so to represent God accurately in the land in which they were living Listen, we, we, we don't have to look very far. We see the effects of what happens when character is set aside and other agendas are replaced. When, when the wrong people are in leadership, we see the effects of that. Laws get twisted. Freedom, freedom and acquittal from guilt are bought. They're achieved on technicalities, on loopholes. Money can seemingly buy freedoms. The result of this is that you end up with a nation that is divided, and that's exactly what God is trying to prevent. Pursue righteousness. Hey, if you're guilty, you're guilty. We're going to deal with it to purge evil. But character matters. Righteousness matters. And the goal, the goal was to pursue righteousness. It was to pursue righteousness. But, but also in our text, we see something else that, that Moses is teaching them about their government. And, and he says this, the danger of not choosing wisely, the danger of not putting men of character in leadership is that you as a nation will wander away from God and the entire nation will suffer. If we balk at, at who we choose for leaders, if we settle, if we do not pursue character, it affects the whole nation. And the reality of what Moses is teaching them is this. The decisions of the leaders not only affected the individuals on trial, but it affected the whole nation. This wasn't just about the individual that was on trial. This was about the entire nation. The entire nation rose and fell on their pursuit of righteousness. The leaders were in place to pursue righteousness. And, and if the leaders freed the guilty, the entire nation would be defiled and suffer. That's why he speaks so strongly against it. If the leaders were corrupt and pursued their own agendas, if they ruled according to their own standards, if they, if they didn't uh, submit their rule to God, everything would fall apart. That sounds familiar. When the leaders departed from the wisdom of the word, when they focused it on their self, instead of the agenda of God, when they ruled by their own rules instead of the word of God, he says everything is going to fall apart. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. Within a couple of generations, you know what the theme of Israel is? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That, that, that was the theme of Israel. Everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. You could probably put that same thing, you could probably put that tagline on America. Do whatever's right in your own eyes. 
Within two generations, Israel found themselves exactly where Moses is warning them not to go. Within two generations. And Moses is saying, righteousness is defined by God's word and it must be followed if communities are going to exist. And it requires godly leadership to be chosen in order for this to happen. And Moses, interestingly enough, he puts the responsibility of this on the people. This was the people's responsibility. We can complain and gripe and all that about the government we want, but guess whose responsibility is? It's ours. It's ours. Our responsibility is always to fight for righteousness and the word of God, no matter the cost. And that's what Moses is telling the people. Look, look what he says in verse 11. According to the terms of the law which they teach you and according to the verdict that they tell you, you shall do. Do not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. We're to rule according to the word, but when you have men and, and women in lead, lead, that lead according to the word, you follow we're to choose people that enable this to happen as best as we can. And loyalty to the Lord, he's saying, is maintained through even the choosing of leaders. Be careful, he's saying. And, and, and again, he's saying, you be loyal and you pursue righteousness. This is exactly what Israel didn't do. As soon, they, they, you, you see the theme here. When you enter the land, verse 14, the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. That's exactly what they did. They wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted to rule like all the other nations. And, and, and that's where Saul came in the picture. God was very clear, don't do this through Samuel. Don't do this. They nope. This is what's going to happen. You can read it in 1 Samuel 8 for the second time we won't. But he said in verse, 1 Samuel 8, you're, they're, going to exalt, they're going to exalt themselves. They're going to abuse your sons and daughters. They're going to tax you. Those kings are going to turn. It's going to be about them. They said, hey, we don't care. We want a king like all the other nations. They had a king. They had the king of kings. They said, we want a guy who's going to fight, with it, fight for us. What had the Lord done for them? The Lord had fought for them. Was still fighting for them. Everything they wanted from an earthly king, they had in, a real, in the real king, the king of kings. Everything that we're looking for in all these other places is found in Christ alone. It's found in Christ alone. It's not found in these earthly leaders. It's not found in this stuff. It's found in Christ. And, and God gave Saul really to, chat, to chasten them. To say, hey, you want a king? I'll give you exactly what you want. You want that? I'll give you exactly what you want. And the demise immediately fell. God never intended for Saul to be Israel's king in the sense of permanent reigns. He was from the wrong tribe. He was from Benjamin. The Judah was the royal lineage. And God gave Saul to them to chasten his people because they had rejected him. God made it very clear in 1 Samuel 8, or 2 Samuel 8, or they're, or first Samuel, they're not reject, he said to Samuel, hey, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Samuel, don't take this personally. They are rejecting me to turn and to walk their own way, to do their own thing, to go about their own lives. Listen, we're not rejecting each other. We're rejecting God. It's a rejection of God. And sometimes what we learn through Israel is this. Sometimes God's greatest judgment to, is to give his people exactly what they want. Sometimes God just gives you over to exactly what you want. If you don't think that's true anymore, if you think that's an Old Testament principle, go read Romans 1. God gave them over to the hardness of their heart. Gave them over, gave them over, gave them over to sin and corruption. If we're left alone... If we're left to ourselves, we wander away from loyalty and devotion to God. And Moses is trying to set up through the inspiration of God, is setting up a structure that would maintain fidelity and loyalty to God. And all of society, listen to me, all of society suffers when we don't stand up for righteousness. That is why God calls for such severe measures here. God's agenda, listen to me, God's agenda requires a people united in its devotion to Him and the preservation of its character as a holy people. 
we have to fight for our preservation as a holy people. You, you can see that in verse 7. And again, I saw that in, in 17, 7. Purge the evil from your midst. Why? Because Satan wants to use that to lead you away. It will destroy the whole nation. You can go to Galatians 5. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin, it, 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 it infiltrates the whole community when you tolerate it. And, and, and it's interesting. These judges... This leadership, they were only there really to settle the most difficult cases. Really, the people of God, what he's saying is the people of God, you ought to be able to settle most of these issues through the word of God. It's the same exact thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, you guys, you guys need judges? You, you're going you're to rule angels. You can't settle these disputes on your own? These, they were just there for the hardest cases, the murders and, and these difficult cases. God has sufficiently enabled us to deal with most of our issues amongst each other. And it's one word, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Murder, homicide and such. Hey, there's, there's people to deal with that. But all this other stuff, you ought to be able to decide amongst yourselves. And what he says here is in, in Deuteronomy 17 is when, when God's people cease to be distinct. Just like verse 14, when, the, when we want to live like all the nations around us, like all the peoples around us, everything falls apart. God uses our separateness, our, our not willingness to go with what culture is going. Not, not weird for weird's sake, but weird for difference sake. God uses that to be a barometer, to, be a, to, to withhold evil. That's why in, in, in Thessalonians there, when the restrainer is removed, things get chaotic. Why? Because the church is gone. God is using you and I, Christian, to restrain evil, whether we believe it or not. But it's done through living a distinct life. And, and God is protecting, you know, in, in calling us to fidelity and loyalty and obedience to this word and, and to deal with, you know... I, as a pastor, you don't like to deal with the Matthew 18s, the confronting one another, the 1 Corinthians 5. But why do you do it? To protect the integrity and the character and the sanctity of the people. Sin has to be purged. Sin has to be dealt with. Unrepentant sin, I'm talking about. Has to be. Otherwise, the, everything falls apart. That's exactly what we see today in our nation. We see it in our churches. No longer distinct, no longer unique. And what Moses is saying has played out in our history. It's played out in the last three months of our history, if you will. And I've battled it was Christmas and all that as your pastor. I want to be able to speak to these things that we see going on in culture. And so I want to bring this home real quickly. We could spend months talking about this, debating this, but I'm not going to talk about opinions. To be honest with you, I don't care what we think. I care what the Word says. We're going we're gonna to submit ourselves to the Word. And, and what we're about to say is going to probably ruffle some feathers. It might offend, but listen to me. You're not rejecting me. You're rejecting the Lord. You want to fight what I say here? You're, you take it up with the Lord. Because we're going to stick to the Word. I'm just going to read the Word. It's going to be very clear. We may not like it, but it's going to be very clear. I want to bring this home in light of all that's taken place in our country over the last few months. I think if we were honest, what we're studying today, what we're seeing today, and we are experiencing the effects of sin, we're experiencing the effects of departing from the Word of God, and we're, we're experiencing the effects of, of pursuing qualities in leadership that aren't necessarily biblical, but suit our own agenda. We're experiencing the effects of Christians not standing up for the Word, for Christians wanting to be more like the world than they do the Word. We're experiencing the effects of all of that. So when we want to blame somebody, let's blame the guy or gal in the mirror first. Let's own our part first. Corruption, ungodliness is the norm in leadership. Whether it's government, whether it's corporations, everywhere. We're pursuing anything but the word. The question becomes this, how do we as Christians respond? That's what I want to answer today. How do we respond to what we see in our nation today? 
Look with me at Romans 13. Flip over to Romans 13. We're going to be there a little while. And, and read, it, read it with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That's a pretty clear statement, simple. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you, not, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom to do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In these seven verses, we have outlined for us very brief and yet very pointed a Christian's responsibility to the government and to those in authority over us. When I say government, I'm talking about I'm not, I'm not only talking about the White House. The White House, your state government, your federal government, your police, your sheriffs, all of that. They're in authority over us. That's what this passage is talking about. This is the most clear, the most direct, the most straightforward passage in all the New Testament about a Christian's responsibility to government. Very clear. And we must understand it because of that. And that's what I want to, to, to apply. Not only Israel had a form of government that pursued righteousness, but God has given us responsibilities to pursue righteousness as well. And the first thing, so you say, what is a Christian's, that's what I want to answer today, what is a Christian's responsibility with regards to the government? First thing we see here is this. We must seek the most godly leadership we can. Seek the most godly leadership that we can. Listen to me, no matter what, God is sovereign. But we get to choose who our leaders are. That's the beauty of America. We get to choose. Our leaders are a reflection of the state of our country. We choose. A nation rises and falls upon its leadership. Therefore, we as Christians ought to be able to be united and pursue those men or those women who most align up with the Word. They're never going to line up perfectly. There, there's differences even amongst us. But there ought to be some key issues that we ought to be able to get behind, fundamental issues that Christians ought to be able to get behind and agree upon because of the Word and pursue that over our own agenda. We ought to pursue the person, the man or the woman that best aligns with the Word of God. I think our country, I think Israel, other nations, it only takes one or two generations to turn the tide of an entire nation. It, it happens quickly. And we need to pursue the most godly leadership we can. Second is this. We must obey the leadership that is chosen. We must obey the leadership that is chosen. 13.1, every person, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. When we oppose, when we resist, when we, when we gossip, when we talk about, when we make fun of, we, guess who you're talking, you're doing that towards God. No authority exists, exists except that which is from God. And, and our issue of a Christian's relationship to government is a huge one. 
It has been this way throughout the church's history. Christians have always had to face the issue of how do we respond to government. This is not Johnny-come-lately issue. This is an issue that's always been there. The church has found itself in all kinds of places, all kinds of governments, all kinds of rulers, all kinds of perspectives. They've always had to ask the question, how do we respond? How do we respond? Even in our text today, that was the issue. God's people, how do, we, how do we govern? And it was total obedience. Total obedience. You look back, and I read it in, in chapter 17. He says, you do not part from the right or to the left from what that governing official says. Whatever rule, whatever verdict they give, you follow it totally. Total obedience. And in, in America, we have had it good, to say the least. For the most part, our government... And obeying that government has been about as good as it gets around the world, for the most part. You take our, our brothers and sisters in China, Russia, other places around the world, it ain't been as easy. America's had it good. Even, even, even where Paul wrote this letter of Romans, there was a lot going on that for him to say what he said was a big deal. Unfortunately, we as Christians, we have not always responded properly to the government that was in place. And it's very clear here that the response to whomever is chosen is this, obey them. Up to the point where they call us or command us to do something that is contrary to the word of God, obey them. Paul, Paul makes it real simple here. Under the inspiration of God, submit yourselves to them and pay your taxes. It's real simple. Obey them, pay your taxes. Simple. It's simple. Christians, again, but we have not always, we have not always, we've not always submitted ourselves to that. We've not always dealt with that well. What Paul is saying, what Moses was saying is this, and, and hear this loud and clear. Believers are to be the conscience of a nation through, through how they obey God's word and through faithful preaching. That's how you change the course of a nation. Faithfulness and fidelity to God. By Christians being what God has called Christians to be. We are the conscience of a nation through that. That is how we confront the nation. It's not through political pressure. It's through obedience to the word of God. It's through living faithfully to the Lord. You look at Deuteronomy again in, in 17, uh, chapter 17, verses 18 through 20. And that's exactly what it says. Moses says, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of his law and a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear God by carefully observing all the words of his law and statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. Obey the word. Obey the word. The word is what is to govern a nation and its leaders. We confront culture. We stand in the face of culture by obeying the word of God. By living in obedience to the word of God. That's how we confront the nation. We preach against sin. We don't water it down. We don't balk at it. We maintain our convictions. We do it lovingly. But that's how we confront a nation. It's by staying true to the word of God. We, we confront a nation by being model citizens. That's how we confront a nation, by being model citizens. But we do it armed with the gospel. We cannot leave that behind. Christians, we ought to be obeying instead of looking for reasons to not obey. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. You say, well, what about a government that doesn't care about the, the things of the word? What about a government that... No, no, no. Guess what? Jesus entered a world that was ruled by one man, had exorbitant taxes, slavery was rampant, he took advantage of people, they were totally opposite of democracy. And what did Jesus say? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to the Lord's what is the Lord's. You don't, we don't get out of this by saying, oh, well, the government's bad, so I don't have to obey. Jesus didn't, and guess what? How did Jesus confront that culture? 
He didn't come in with tyranny and, and an army. He didn't seek social change. He didn't come with political issues in mind. He didn't come with economic issues in mind. He, he came with one thing in mind, the gospel. The gospel. Because Jesus knew what we need to know. The problem is at the hearts of the individuals that are being governed. That's the problem. It's a heart issue. And the gospel confronts the real need that's causing the problem. It's the gospel. It's sin. He didn't come to bring a new government. He didn't come with democracy. He didn't come waving the flag of Judaism. His appeal was always to the hearts of individuals through the gospel. The gospel. He, he, was, not, he was not concerned about these other things. He, he didn't participate in civil rights. He didn't crusade to abolish injustice. He came preaching the gospel because the rest would take care of it once people had a change of heart and lived faithfully and with fidelity to the Lord. That's the problem. Here's what Jesus knew. Once a man's soul or a woman's soul was right with God, it very, matters very little what the externals are. When our heart is right, when our heart is in complete alignment and pursuing alignment with God and His Word, it don't matter what the externals are. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, he could say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, with everything, in everything, give thanks. Why? Because when, I, when it's settled in my heart who Jesus is, and I know He's on the throne, come what may, I can rejoice. He wasn't interested in a social order. He, wasn't, he was interested in a spiritual order, namely the church. He was interested in a kingdom, but it was through the gospel. And they're, they're, listen to me, their issues in that day that Jesus came were far more severe than ours. And yet he always maintained the gospel at the heart. He didn't pursue all this other stuff. It was about the gospel. Fundamentally, listen, fundamentally, we don't exist to propagate politics. You're not going to hear me talk a lot about it. We exist to share the gospel. We exist to be the moral compass of a nation through Christians living faithfully with fidelity to the Word of God and sharing with others how they too can have that. What we have, it's the gospel. What this country and every other country in the world needs more than anything is the gospel. They need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, not social change. People need a change of heart, and that's what God came offering through Jesus Christ. And if we want to change culture, we ought to commit all of our resources, all of our eggs ought to be in this basket, leading, other, leading men and women to repentance of their sinfulness and into a, li a, a living, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the number one reason we exist. That's how change happens. It's through the gospel. All of our energies, all of our efforts, all of our resources ought to be focused on that, the gospel. And that is exactly what God has called us to do. Other than the fact that God calls us to be model citizens, He is very silent with regards to these other things. Very silent. It doesn't speak to these other things, civil change and all this stuff. That's not our priority. Choose the best leadership we can. Obey who's there. Bottom line. Beyond that, we ought to be busy with God's kingdom. Busy doing the things that have eternal significance. These other things are not important. Again, everything in Romans 13 goes back to Romans 12, the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It is a response to what God has done in the gospel in our own lives. I obey the government, or seek to obey the government. Why? Because God is my king, and he's called me to obey the government. And So, so you, you ask the question, and, and some of your minds... So, so what if we have terrible rulers? What, what if they're just not, what if they don't care about the Lord? What if they, guess what? I'm glad you asked because God's word speaks to that. Again, there's no outs here. We, we, there's a part of our sinfulness. We look for loopholes. We want to look for outs. God left us no outs. Listen to me. Look, look up above. Or, or actually, we'll come back. Let's go to Romans 12 since we're there. We're going to go to 1 Peter 2. But Romans 12, 14 through 21. You say, we have a terrible, look, suppose you live in the, you said the government's terrible, the government's awful, the government's persecuting me, the government's hateful toward me, the government's, the government's bad to me, the government's mean, okay, guess what, guess what our response is? 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Listen to verse 17. This is where it gets good or, or bad, depending on how you approach this. Never. Is there, any, is there any confusion on what the word never means? Are there any circumstances that don't fall under the category of never? Like we can be in agreement on that. Never pay back evil for evil to who? Anyone. Is there anyone that doesn't fall under the category of anyone? No loopholes. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. So it doesn't matter what they did to you, believer. It doesn't matter. The details are irrelevant. Never pay back evil with evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Listen to what is now verse 19. Never take your own revenge. Doesn't matter what they did to you, Christian. Doesn't matter how they harmed you. Doesn't matter what they did to your loved one, Christian. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But listen, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Christian, you know your response is to, to a bad government? Obey them. Pray for them. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with them. Apart from them calling you to do something that's against the word of God, obey them. See, and here's the bottom line. This requires faith. You see what my flesh wants to do? My flesh wants to take my own revenge. My flesh wants to do exactly what we see our culture doing that Christians ought not to be doing. That's not what the Word of God says. And it gets better. Go to 1 Peter 2. Again, better depending on how you come to this text. 1 Peter 2. First Peter 2, starting in verse 13. Peter writes, starting in verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Why do we do this? For our testimony, for the name of our Lord. To every human institution. Not some, not the most. Whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right? For such is the will of God, listen to this, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. You see how we're the conscience, we're the moral conscience of a culture? We silence the ignorance of foolish men, what? By doing right, not by acting like they act. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as bond slaves to God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Okay, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And this is the kicker. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Do we only submit to those who we agree with? No, we submit to those who we don't. See, submission to somebody that I agree with is not submission. That's called agreement. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I can, I'll, this is off the cuff and I'll probably get in trouble with it, but when you agree, wives, when you agree with your husband, that's not called submission, that's called agreement. When I agree with my boss, that's not called submission, that's called agreement. Submission happens when I don't agree. Submission happens when there's a difference. Submission happens when they want me to do something that I don't want to do, but I got to do it. That's submission. Submit, even, even, but also to those who are unreasonable. Why? Verse 19, for this finds favor. If for sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. 
Do you see what's at stake? We are the moral compass of our country by doing what is right, even when it's, even when it's not easy, especially when it's not easy. You, we cannot get around this. It doesn't matter the type of ruler that we have. Our response is the same. Up to the point where, God, where they tell me to violate this word, my response as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, is obedience. It's not trying to find a way to get out of it. It's not trying to manipulate it. It's obedience. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. The integrity of our God is at stake. The name of our Lord Jesus is at stake. Listen to me. And, and we're going, I thought we'd get done early, but who knew? Surprise, surprise. I told you those short sermons in December wouldn't last. Listen, listen. Try to add levity to the heaviness of it. And for our visitors today, they're probably thinking, is he mad? I, I'm mad at myself for however I was responding to the government sometimes because it's not in obedience to the word. Listen to me. The government is not the problem. The government is not the problem. Listen to me. I don't want to step on toes here, but, but I, I will. I feel like God wants me. The police are not the problem. The sheriffs are not the problem. The president is not the problem. You and I are the problem. Sin in my heart is the problem. Lack of submission to the word of God is the problem. Christians not obeying the word of God is the problem. Christians not living out what God has called us to do, to be distinct, to be submissive, to Christians giving into the culture, uh, having our own agenda, that's the problem. Listen, even, even, dialing, even dialing a little back, you, you look at the studies, this is where it's convicting to me. I have two children. You look at the studies of what comprises our prison system, you know what the number one common denominator of people who sit in our prisons today are? Lack of a father figure. Number one determining, number one determining thing of, of, of someone sitting in prison is this, the number one factor. There, there are parts of our country where 70% of children have no father. Here, here's my question. Why don't we, why are we picketing that? Why don't we wear that on t-shirts? Why don't our t-shirts say, hey, step up, dad. Be a dad. The police are not the problem, Christians. The sheriffs are not the problem. They have a responsibility. They have a duty that, that you and I can't fathom. And they are ambassadors of God. They represent God. Are they perfect? They are not perfect. But guess what our response to imperfect police is? Submit to them. Obey them. Pray for them. 99.9999 to infinity of those police and the sheriffs out there are doing a great job. A difficult job. Probably earning less than they should to do what they do. We're, we're, outraged as a, we're outraged as a country at the wrong things. Why? Because it's easy for me to be mad at somebody else. If I can make the police the problem, that doesn't require change on me. But when I realize that sorry fathers, absent fathers are the problem, that's on me. That's on me now. i got to look at the guy in the mirror and say, Chris, what are you doing to change the culture with the two little ones that God graced you with? How are you doing, Chris? We ought to care more about social we, we, we care more about social issues than we do about the gospel. And again, I don't know what happened in these situations. I don't know. But I do know, I, what I do know is this: as a Christian, my job is to obey the police. I do know this: We reap what we sow. You get involved in criminal behavior? Guess what? You may, you're going to reap what you sow. It's going to cost you, and sometimes it may cost you your life. Because in Romans 13, he says this, Do you want to have no fear of the government? Do what is right. Do what is right. Generally speaking, 99% of the time, that works. Go out here, obey the speed limit. 
Obey the laws. Pay your taxes. Do what God's Word says to do. I don't worry about when the police come driving through my neighborhood. I know they're not coming to me. Obey, Christian. Sin is the issue and the gospel is the solution. We, we have put people in place. They are ambassadors. They are representations of God to reject them, to go after them. And, and here's my point, guys. If you're gathered around the water cooler as Christians and people start talking about this, don't, don't, get, don't, get, don't be like your culture and get wrapped in and start talking about the bad about the government and the police. Be different by saying nothing or taking a stand. We lay our head at night every night under the watchful care of men and women who serve in our military, who serve in, who are sheriffs, who are police, who are in government, that have a responsibility we can't fathom. And we pillow our head every night without a care, and we ought to be saying thank you to them. Not talking about the way they dole out justice. And certainly not retaliate. I think we've made our point clear. Retaliation for a believer, that is always wrong. I mean, what good does burning down a city do? What good does retaliate? It does no good. Shooting the police, it does no good. All that does is tear down a... Besides, it's sin, it tear, destroys a nation. Bad-mouthing them, it destroys a nation. The, the cure for our society is Christ. It is the gospel. It's not social reform. The most important thing is God's word and his righteousness. It is sharing the gospel. It's not taxes and these other things. It's the gospel. It's choosing godly men and women to lead our nation and then following them and praying for them and supporting them and helping them. It's, it's Christians not being like the culture. That's our job. That's our role. That's how we're seasoned with salt. The world will recognize us by our righteous behavior, not by our retaliating and killing those who maybe hurt us or offend us. They're not going to recognize us by retaliation. They're going to recognize us by our righteous behavior, by our responding to even bad governments with obedience. That's how they'll recognize us. And they ask us why, and we say here, the gospel. Jesus. The answer is Jesus. And, and this will, what we see in Deuteronomy, it's the same for us. This will involve an uncompromising personal and corporate commitment to the Lord. Unwavering. It will involve seriously dis disciplining those who stray. It will involve discipleship. That's why we have Wednesdays. That's why we try to preach the Word, to help us understand the Word, to defend the Word. Listen to me. It starts with you and I. It starts with believers. It starts with believers. The responsibility to pursue and administer righteousness is never left up to the appointed officials. It is left to us as individuals. It's mine and your responsibility. And I pray that we would, as a church, be that people. That God would use us to change the culture, the tide, to do something here in Odessa through our individual lives. That we would seek to live quiet lives, tending our own business, pay our taxes, obey our government, and God would use that to get great glory and share the gospel.